going back to First Peter, we were uh, working our way through First Peter, and and I I intend to finish it. Uh, it may not be uh, until the summer that we finally get through the whole book, but we will do our best. Um, traditionally, I have done uh, New Testament sermons during the school year, and then during the summer we do Old Testament work. Um, but there'll be a little more overlap this year. Um, and then actually when summer comes, we're going to go back to the book of Psalms. Um, before we dive into our text, we're going to pray. And then we are going to uh, talk a bit about uh, Peter's uh, epistle. So let's bow our heads. Um, Heavenly Father, I, I pray that that the folks who came here today through the inclement weather would hear from you, Lord. That, that you know, this this uh, desire to, to be here and to worship you and, and to to face the elements, uh, Lord, that, that you would bless them for, for their efforts. And I pray for the folks who are listening online, Lord, that, that they would hear from you as well. Um, folks who are stranded because of the snow or, or um, you know, concerns because of the weather. And I pray, Lord, that everybody who is, who is here, who is hearing our words, who is hearing the gospel this morning, I pray that you would help them to know you more and, and to know Christ more intimately and to become more like you uh, designed them to be, Lord. I pray that um, just you would pour your grace out on us, uh, Lord, and and uh, make yourself known to us in just intense ways, Lord. Help us to know you. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless me as I preach. Help me to be faithful. Help me to not say things that that are wrong or, or that would uh, um, drive people away from hearing your word, Lord, but that, that I would speak the truth in love and that I would point over and over again to your gospel. And Lord, I pray that, that most of all your spirit would be the one talking. I, I know, Lord, that my best words are, are not very good. Um, and that, that even when I'm, you know, most on without your spirit, there's, there's nothing I can accomplish. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, there is a spot in Alice in Wonderland. I read um, Alice in Wonderland to my daughter. Uh, and this has, we're going to get to the point. I'm not just talking about Alice in Wonderland this morning. Um, I read Alice in Wonderland to Abigail a few years ago. And um, it is a nonsensical story. Like it is, uh, it just kind of meanders. There's not really a whole lot of point. The Disney movie kind of makes it seem a little more put together, but it's just not. Um, but there's this great line, um, and it's full of these really good like lines and these really good kind of quirky, whimsical thoughts. But there's this spot where Alice is wandering through Wonderland and she meets the Cheshire Cat. Uh, and the Cheshire Cat is probably one of the best characters in the story. Uh, but she, she stops and she talks to him and she asks her directions and she says, uh, would you please tell me which way I ought to go from here? And the cat asks, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. And she responds, I don't much care where. And the cat responds, then it doesn't matter which way you go. Um, we live in a culture, in a world, where um, folks spend their entire lives chasing after the good life, right? And actually, if you watch commercials, there's a ton of that stuff. Like, that's the central message of just about every television commercial. You watch people with their cell phones, and like 80% of cell phone commercials are families loving and happy together talking on their cell phones to each other, right? Because if you have a phone that allows you to not see each other when you talk, it makes you closer, um, or cars. Every car commercial is about the great adventure you have if you, you know, and your life will be more adventurous if you, I mean, over and over again. And it's because, like, as a culture, we're in this weird place where 
Um, we want all sorts of things, but we have no idea where we're going. And so we're kind of chasing one thing after another after another. I, uh, when Abby was a little girl, there was a day that we were out, and we saw um, those little white butterflies. I think they're moths, actually. Are they moths? No, no, you see them all over out here, white and yellow. And Abby was chasing one, and then another one went by, and instead of continuing to chase the one, she turned and chased the other one. And then, you know what happened? Another moth came by, and she turned and chased that one. And she jumped from, from critter to critter to critter, and she just, you know, wanted it. Didn't know why she wanted it. Didn't know what she was going to do with it once she got it. In fact, I think if she ever caught one, she probably would have freaked her out a little bit to see it up close. But it was pretty, so she wanted it. And we have this tendency in our day and age to chase, to look for deeper meaning, to look for fulfillment, to look for joy, you know, and... and um, Jess and I, when we were in Hawaii, we met a fella who said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but I know I want to live there, and that'll make me happy. And so he went, and he lived on a beach for a year. And that was supposed to make him happy. And, and, and I, I don't think there's any happiness in that. We get this idea, comfort, travel, adventure, money, family, this, that, the other. All of these things become all about the good life. You know, if I have more money, and I have more stuff, and I have better cars, and I have this, and I have that... Um, but at the end of the day, that's a big empty well. It's a big empty hole. It's not a well. Sorry. Um, a lot of my study of this text we're going to look at this week brought me to uh, Ecclesiastes, which if you're in, in the mood for a good depressing read, that is the one Solomon, King Solomon, at the end of his life, um, sits down and writes like his observations. And he, he says things like, you know, I spent years building cities and I amassed more wealth than anybody had ever heard of having before. And I had thousands of concubines. And I had wine parties and this and that and the other. And I come to the end and I realize there was no point to any of it. Like none of it really made me happy. None of it really made me fulfilled. I'm going to die one day and those cities are going to change their names. They're not going to be named after me anymore. And all this wealth I've amassed, somebody else is going to get it. Like all of this work, all of this stuff, it was for nothing. And in the end, what he, what he figures out, like in what Solomon boils it down to, is the best thing there is in life is to enjoy what God has given you, enjoy the work he's given you, and to follow him. And that is it. Um, we're going to dive into Peter. And what Peter is doing here, he's, he's so we've been working through this book, and, and he is writing an epistle, to this is, which is a letter, right, to a big group of churches all over sort of... Um, West Asia, you know, so you're talking about like Greece and, you know, the Middle East and up into, um, up into like West or Eastern Europe and all that. Like, like this whole area, he's writing letters to all of these guys, this one letter. And a lot of these folks are converts. A lot of them are poor. A lot of them are slaves or women or whatever. Like they are people who are not considered to be the top tier of the society back then. And this portion of the letter, we're coming to the very last little chunk of what's called a household code. In the ancient world, paper was super expensive. And so what you would do is you would memorize absolutely everything. And one of the things that everybody memorized was household codes. And so, like, you would go into the city of Athens, and they had their own household code that everybody knew what their job was. And it would be, you know, if you're this, this is what you have to do. If you're this, this is what you have to do. If you're, you know, a slave, here are your responsibilities. If you're a wife, if you're children, or if you're this. And it would explain, this is my code to live by. Very simple, very quick. Um, the New Testament has about a dozen of them. And all of them have sort of unique 
features for the ancient world, like the scriptures sort of present interesting perspectives on the whole genre. Um, but this is a household code, and his very last section is a summary, right? And, and this is really cool. And um, one last little note before we dive into it. Uh, Peter quotes from the book of Psalms here, right? And Psalms is, I, I, I just recently started studying the Psalms more in depth. Psalms is sort of the marinade that the New Testament soaks in. Right? Like everybody who wrote in the New Testament were people who had the book of Psalms memorized because you didn't have books, right? Like nobody owned books. A whole town would own a copy of the Torah, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like an entire town might have one copy if they were lucky. One person rarely owned a book. And so the way that you would have copies of the scriptures is starting as a very small child, you would memorize it. And the average student, by the time they finished school, memorized the first five books. And most people would memorize, if not the whole book of Psalms, like big swaths of it. And so these guys have memorized it, and they repeat it. And like one of the things that the scriptures will say is, it'll talk about, when you consider your words, these words, or you should consider the law. That's because you're not reading and studying the law. You have it memorized, and you're thinking about it. And so, like, Peter's going to quote from Psalms, and Psalms is a lot of sort of the ethical undergirding and some of the scriptural justification for things that we find in the New Testament. And this is a cool example of this. So, like, we're going to talk about what Peter has to say about the good life. Like, what are we to do? Um, you know, are we to chase wealth? Are we to win? Are we to be the most powerful, the most well-known what are we supposed to do? And Peter divides it into two little bits. And the first bit is, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So this is the first verse in this section, right? And this is not a unique sentiment. As a matter of fact, this is something we hear over and over and over again addressed to the church. Be unified. Right? Have unity of mind. Have sympathy toward each other. Love your brothers. Um, be tender-hearted, not hard-hearted toward each other. Be humble. Uh, Paul varies this when he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now watch this. We're going to jump back here to Peter. Um, there's a parallel here. Like without the ability to set your own needs aside, set your own desires aside, set your own agenda aside, it is impossible to be like-minded. It is impossible to love folks. One of the things that I encounter a lot when I talk to married couples who are, who are arguing a lot is um, like, like an amazing ability to not see the other person's point of view, and to not give an inch, like, at all, right? Because you got to win, right? Um, and, of course, the idea there is, like, amongst married people, if you win an argument, guess what? You lost because, like, then your wife doesn't like you as much or your husband doesn't like you as much. The same thing exists in the church. Like, we win arguments with each other. Um, Frances told me when she first started coming to this church, a long time ago, I think maybe almost as long as anybody except for um, Glenn and Anita, probably. But when she first started coming to this church, 
there was a huge conflict over the color of paint on the walls. That's it. They were fighting over the color of paint. And like that is a sign that people are unwilling to give a little bit. Because if I'm willing to damage a brother in Christ over yellow walls instead of cream-colored walls, I'm missing a point, right? Um, why am I talking about this? What's Peter's like rooting idea here? Um, the center of the faith is this idea that, or is this truth that God sent his son to die for us. That you and I sin, that you and I rebel, that you and I are, are, are lost from birth, but that Jesus Christ, God's son, died for our sins. He carried the weight of our wickedness on his back, that God poured his wrath out on him, and that like that punishment he suffered in our place on the cross like forgives us. And in that, like after that, the resurrection, we are made brand new as new creation, as new creatures, and we're unified as one. And so now, like, think about this. Me being one with Jimmy as a brother in Christ, as a family of God, is what Jesus, like, Jesus died to forgive me. But the end result of that, like, like you know, earthly result is we're unified. We're family of God. So if Jimmy and I can't get along, then I'm putting, because I want my way and Jimmy doesn't like my way, then I'm putting my way above Christ. Right? I'm putting my way above the body of Christ. Above, like, somebody who Jesus died for. Right? There's a, a great scene at the end of uh, Saving Private Ryan. Did you guys seen this movie? It's, it's a pretty rough film. Like I don't know that I'm recommending it. It's a great movie, but but it's very violent. It's very. But the the story is of this group of soldiers that are sent to rescue Private Ryan, who um, all of his brothers are killed during D-Day. And so this group of soldiers go out and they look for this private to take him home. So that the entire family doesn't lose, like they lost like seven brothers. They wanted to make sure that at least one of the children from this family survives. So they go looking for him. And when they find him, Ryan refuses to leave. He's like, nope, we have to stop the Nazis here. This is our spot. We have to defend this bridge and I will not leave until it's defended. And then all of these other soldiers die, like fighting the battle with Ryan so that they could get him out alive. And there's like 12 guys that end up dying like to save Private Ryan. And the last line in the movie, spoken by Tom Hanks, as he's he's dying and they've just won this battle, he looks at this young man and he says, you earn this. Right? You earn this. Um, The reason this comes to mind, the reason I'm thinking about this is, can you imagine being in that spot where you look at somebody who has died for you and they say, Live life right because we did this for you. How humbling would that be? Right? Like how, oh my gosh, I really do have to put some, I mean, that somebody actually would give up their life on my behalf. I, I have to live right to deserve it. Could you imagine if Private Ryan had gone home and like become a drunk and died homeless? You know, people, oh my gosh, what is that? Like, why would you do that? I mean, an awful ending for the film. Um, and, and in real life, like, like Christ died for us, folks, and Christ died for us to be humble and to be like-minded and to be unified. And that is the life that's worth living, right? That is the life that's worth having. That is what we were saved for, is to be the body of Christ, to share the gospel, to save the lost, to care for each other, to glorify God in everything that we do. That 
brothers and sisters, is what we exist for. I went to a church <clears throat> once uh, years ago where, uh, I don't know, every couple of years we had a huge fight and people left. And we, like the church had brought some people to Jesus over the time that we were there. And a lot of those people walked away from the church entirely because they said, if this is what the body of Christ is like, I don't want to be a part of it. Right? This would be the opposite of earn this. Right? By the way, we can't earn our salvation. Right? Like, but we are saved for a purpose. We are saved to live a certain way. And that certain way isn't to chase after our own desires. It's not to win every battle. It's not to be the biggest and the smartest and the brightest and have the nicest car or be the most holy and everybody looks at you and admires you and everything else. Like, that's not it. We were saved to do good works. We were saved to serve Christ and to glorify him. And so in the body of Christ, in the church, like, like our job is to be unified. Our job is to stand together. Does that mean we always have to agree? No. I'm going to guarantee you, you get three of us in the room, and I'm going to disagree with all of you. And I'm the one who's right. But I'm willing to put that aside. <laughs> Kidding. is a joke. Um, wow. Tough crowd. Like, <laughs> um, we don't always have to agree. In fact, Paul kind of addresses that. He says, listen. I know some of you guys think that you need to observe the old Jewish festivals. And if you don't observe the old Jewish festivals, then they're like, it's sinful. And Paul says, you know what? Just observe the festivals because it's better to observe a festival and be a little inconvenienced than to do something that damages the other guy's faith, right? Like you're free to not do it, but if this guy can't manage it, do it for him. Why? Because the festival honors God? No, Because raising other people up so that they know Christ more intimately, so they grow holier, so they mature in the body, that is what we live for. That is the good life. Not having the best car, not having the nicest anything. What we live for, the good life, is to be like Jesus. And there's nothing better in life than to be able to, like, have folks look at you and say, that person showed me Jesus. I know who Christ is because of that guy's attitude and that guy's behavior and that guy's everything. Like, I see Jesus when I look at that guy. That is the best thing that can be said of you. And then usually you back up and say, well, if you knew me better. Uh, Philippians, this is uh, Paul writing. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of his spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy compete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you the interests of others. Um, And he goes on, he says, in your relations with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being the very nature of God, do not, did not consider equality with God to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Now, Paul in Philippians summarizes what Peter is basically saying here, right? Because Peter says, be like-minded, be humble, be this, be that, be the other. And then Paul comes back and he says, listen, all of this stuff, it boils down to being like Christ, who was 
like he was God. And he didn't use it to his advantage. He put it aside, right? And he humbled himself. He didn't use it to force his way on folks. He used it to glorify God. He didn't use it like as a, as a point of strength to crush his enemies. He used it to serve. And we are, if we're going to be united in Christ, if we're going to have the same love and the same spirit and the same everything, we are to back up and say, you know what? I'm going to be like Jesus. Because all of it boils down to being like Jesus. All of the household code boils down to being like Jesus because we are called to imitate Christ in everything. If you want to live a life worth living, figure out how to implement the teachings of Jesus every day in all of your relationships, in your family, in your everything. You want to have a better marriage? Be like Christ to your spouse. That I mean, I, I can't even boil it down any better than that. I mean, like, what else is there? You know, like, like I, I tell folks a lot, I can't believe how often I say this, but I, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Um, Christ taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that we're to uh, um, love those who persecute, or love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And I sometimes will talk to married couples and I say, "Hey, do you love your spouse, even though they're making you angry, and do you pray for them on a regular basis?" No. <laughs> if I'm supposed to love my enemy, surely the person I share a house with is on the list, right? But it's so hard to do. That's right because it's. It's, it's almost supernatural, right? I've got to be like Jesus. Oftentimes, marriage is the crucible that ho- like creates holiness in us. And that's hard, and it's miserable. But in the long run, in the long run, life isn't about having fun. The best life you can have is not about having the nicest car. It's not about always being happy and laughing. It's not always about taking the best vacations, about becoming like Christ and knowing God intimately. And in that, there's a deeper meaning, a deeper, like, everything to have. Um, So Peter continues, right? First verse. Now we're on to verse 9. So the first one is primarily an inward thing. Within the church, within the church amongst the brothers and sisters, do this. This is outward. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to, do, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. This is right out of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I just like jump right into the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you to take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from one who wants to borrow from you. Um... You have heard it said, love your enemies, or love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I just used that. Uh, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and to send rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, What are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Peter draws right out of Christ's teachings. Why are we supposed to do this? Because this is how God designed us to be. Like, there's this idea that, that, you know, we're in a culture war. 
you know, we have to fight the, the pagans that are influencing the church and turning everyone evil. Um, and I don't know about all that. I know we have to try and be Christ-like and we have to be salt in this world and we have to be, be Christ representatives in this world. But this idea that we're going to fight a war with everyone around us really makes it hard to love people who are awful, doesn't it? I mean, I, I discovered this on, uh, like I read Twitter a lot, and I've got a lot of ministers and other prominent Christians I follow, and it's weird how many of them absolutely hate different politicians, right? It blows my mind, like, well, look, if this person's your enemy, shouldn't you figure out how to love them? Like, are you praying for them regularly? I mean, all of us have people whose names make us kind of grit our teeth when we have to say them out loud, Right? I had a gal I dealt with in ministry who I would hear her name and I would have anxiety pangs. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I don't want to talk about this person. Oh, I don't want to deal with this. Oh, this person drives me nuts. Oh, I hate them so much. But in reality, like, that was a failure on my part because, like, like I had to learn to pray for this person. Does that mean that I should always be happy? No, don't hear me saying that. Does that mean I have to let people run over me or take advantage of me. I don't think that's what Christ is talking about here. But it is an attitude and a direction that we're supposed to take. Um, Our culture glorifies destroying the bad guy, doesn't it? When was the last time you saw a movie where the good guy didn't kill everybody who was on the wrong side of the team? Right? (laughs) Like, when was the last time you saw a movie where the bad guy didn't get crushed entirely by the hero? We are Christ representatives. That is the world's attitude. Our attitude is love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. There's a lot of complicated implications of this. I'm not talking about the whole world. I'm not talking about this. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying you as an individual, if you want to live a good life, um, the two things that Peter tosses out at the end, like if you want to be like Christ, have his attitude when you deal with each other, right? And have his attitude when you deal with people who are, like, hurting you. And actually, you can see this attitude. We just did Easter, right? Good Friday, Easter. Like, all the stuff building up to that. And when Christ is being crucified, his response is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? Like, Christ, Christ actually died for people. People who hated him. People who... who you know, whipped him and nailed him to the cross. Um, Christ died for people who were awful, who were his enemies. In fact, actually, if you flash back a couple days before the cruci- or the day before the crucifixion, at the Last Supper, he went around and he washed his disciples' feet, right? That would have included Judas. Dude, and Judas was the guy who betrayed him. I mean, like, like if you go through the rest of Scripture, every time Judas is mentioned, there is not a nice word said about him. In fact, you almost imagine these guys like spitting when they get to his name. You know, like they're, it's bad. Because um, Judas was the betrayer, but Christ washed his feet. The cultural significance of that, like there, there's a case in Jewish law, like before, like in the old, in the in, intertestamental period, where a mother sued her son in religious court for the right to wash his feet. Because she wanted to do this as a show of like submission and love for him. And he refused to let her because it was such an offensively low thing to do. And so they had a court case where they decided, well, in the show of like intimate submission, you can do this voluntarily. But only rarely and only really in private. And Christ did that for Judas. 
this is the good life. The good life is to be like Jesus. And that means we encounter people who are awful and we love them. And believe me, that is hard. I'm not saying this like it's an easy thing to do. There are people I don't get along with well. I know it's hard to believe, but not everybody likes me. And I pray for those folks. And I try to find ways to... Really, who's laughing at that? (laughs) But it's amazing how much you change when you figure out how to pray for folks. When you figure out how to love people who despise you. It's one of the best blessings you can give yourself is to be like Christ in this way. It frees you. It heals you. Helps you understand Christ's perspective, like as he died for people who like hated him. Peter closes with a quote. Um, this is Psalm 34. If you, uh, I'd recommend taking the time to check this out on your own. Like this is, well, the whole book of Psalms is fantastic. I, I'm doing a thing right now. I'm reading through Psalms, like trying to read through Psalms once a month. And the more I read Psalms, the more I realize, like. The whole New Testament can almost be poured into the book of Psalms. Like, it is so, like, chunky. And there's so much cool material there. Like, the resurrection is predicted. And the crucifixion is predicted. And, like, like all of this stuff. But where Peter's quoting here, this is one of those weird little spots where Psalms and Proverbs kind of hold hands and run around together. Like, because Proverbs is all these little sayings. And some of the wisdom approach shows up in Psalms sometimes. Especially, like, Psalm 1 is... Is sometimes called like Proverbs in the book of Psalms. Um, But this little section reads like Proverbs. It says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, right? If you want the good life, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, there's a lot here, and this fits in with the previous two verses. Now, watch this. It's like Legos. It's all going to click together. Watch this. Um, Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Now, this whole section of text is all this... Uh, household code. This is how you live a good life. If you want to live a good life, if you want the life God designed you to have, if you want to like have good days. And by the way, if you jump to the last verse that Peter quotes, the idea here is being righteous and having the Lord hear your prayers and not having God as an enemy is the definition of good life. It's the definition of good days, right? There are people who are God's enemy who are filling themselves up over and over again with the pleasures of the world, and ultimately it leaves them emptier and emptier, and their lives are a wreck. You see it all the time. It is all around us. It's on the news. It's everything. But Peter's taking a different tack. He says the good life is to be on God's team. The good life is to be righteous. The good life is to have a God who hears your prayers. Um, And he goes on. He says, don't speak evil. Avoid speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, we talk about be unified with your brothers and don't fight with people in the world. Like, what else is there, right? Because most of the way we attack the people around us is verbally. Anybody have friends like that? You sit down to talk to them and they got nothing nice to say about anyone? And by the time you leave, you're really agitated because they've said a hundred thousand nasty things about everyone or they've nitpicked 
every aspect of somebody else's life or whatever. You walk away and you're like, oh my gosh, I gotta go take a shower. I feel dirty after talking to them. Like, <laughs> this is what Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about being the kind of people where, like, the things that come out of your mouth glorify God. The things that come out of your mouth create, like, like, they create um, unity in the body. They create um, love between brothers. They glorify God. They lift each other up. Like when we speak, we do this. We don't lie. We don't chase after evil. Instead, we chase after peace. Um, chasing after peace is hard, especially in a church, right? I mean, I, I know pastors, it's like their full-time job to run around and put out fires, and like 80% of the time, they could stop doing that if everybody would just stop and love each other and put their own needs aside in favor of the other guys, right? At the core of what we're called to do, guys, at the core of what we're called to do, like we are to glorify Jesus and to imitate him. We're to follow him as people who are saved by his death and we're to live lives that reflect it, right? Like Private Ryan, earn this. Not that you can earn salvation again. But like, live a life that reflects what you glorify, reflects what saved you. Keep your tongue from evil. Speak in ways that glorify God. Seek peace. Don't do evil. Do good. And if we do these things, like God is on our team. His eyes are on us. He watches us. He hears our prayer. By the way, um, there's an interesting little thing there. Um, and his ears are open to their prayer. If you flash back about... Uh, five verses, Peter is talking to husbands, and he says, treat your wife right so that God will hear your prayer. Right? Husbands, be aware, if you don't treat your wife correctly, if you don't love her and treat her like Christ loved the church the whole nine yards, like you are setting yourself up in the opposite position here because Paul cons- or Peter considers this to be central. My challenge for you this week is read Psalm 34. Very concrete. Right? Read Psalm 34 and do this. Like, ask yourself, how do I reflect this? How does my heart show that I am like Christ? How do people around me see Christ and how I live? How do my words reflect Jesus? How does my action, how do I do good? How do I pursue righteousness? Like, how am I being like Jesus? Or am I being like the deleted ending of Private Ryan where he wastes his whole life and does nothing. (laughs) Or worse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I praise you just for the opportunity to be like Jesus. That, That you sent your Son to die for us, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to purify us, to make us whole. I pray, Lord, that you would just over and over again in everything that we do, prompt us and point us in the direction of glorifying you. Help us, to, help us to set our own needs aside. Help us to tear our pride down or our selfishness and anything else that might get in the way of us being like Christ in these things. Help us to just take that and, and nail it to the cross, Lord. And I pray that, that when we deal with the world that we would be just a reflection of who Christ is. Help us to pray for our enemies. Help us to set hate aside and to love our neighbors. Like in everything we do, Lord, help us to be like Christ who died for us. Amen.